All right, well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll read verses 13 to 20, but our focus today will be verses 16 to 18. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 says this, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God... Desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, asking, Lord, that you might give to us a full assurance of faith. Lord, just as your disciples cried out to you to increase their faith, so, Lord, we also cry out today, Lord, that you might increase our faith. Lord, we know that we are beset with many weaknesses, with many fears and doubts and trepidations, Lord, during the time of our sojourning. And so we need, Lord, constant reminders, constant encouragements, Lord, to confirm our faith, Lord, assurances that all that you have promised you will surely bring about. And so we ask today, Lord, that you might grant to us such assurance that we might see, Lord, through your word, that the promise that you have made, Lord, to the heirs, it is impossible that you will not bring these things about. And that, Lord, we must endure and wait patiently. But those who do wait patiently will receive the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their soul. So, Father, we ask that you would give to us an even greater assurance Lord, that it might be even more certain to us and that, Lord, you would do so through your word. Please build up our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we began this passage last week where the apostle is seeking to strengthen the faith of the church, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. It says in Hebrews 11.6, faith is essential to living a life pleasing to God. The entirety of the life of the Christian is a life of faith. The righteous shall live by his faith, it says in Habakkuk chapter 2. And since this is essential to the living of the Christian life and living a life pleasing to God, then this is where Satan, the great adversary of the church, will seek to attack. He wants to undermine our faith in the promise of God, in the word of God, so that our faith is weakened, so that it does not have full assurance, so that we are overcome with fears, with doubts, with apprehensions concerning the many promises of God. If Satan can undermine our faith, then every other Christian virtue will suffer, and this is where he will attack us. Therefore, wherever the attack is most fierce, this is where we need the greatest reinforcements. Our faith needs to be fortified against the adversaries of, or against our great adversary, so that it becomes stable, so that it is immovable, so that it is rooted deeply, anchored down to face all of the onslaughts of the enemy. And this is what the apostle knows, and this is what he is seeking to do in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, strengthening the faith of the saints by showing the absolute certainty of the promise of God. He brought forward Abraham as an example of a man who was himself in need of great confirmations for his faith. And God gave to him such confirmations. Over the course of his sojourning, while he waited patiently for God to fulfill his promise, the Lord came to him multiple times confirming over and over and over again the promise he had made to Abraham. And specifically at the end of his life in Genesis 22, 
in order to confirm the promise with even more certainty. To strengthen the faith of Abraham, God swore an oath to him. God placed himself under an oath, swearing by his own name that he would surely bless and multiply Abraham. That all of the blessings of salvation would come to Abraham through his seed, through this singular offspring that God would raise up from him, who is our Lord Jesus Christ, who would become the fount of all of the spiritual blessings of salvation. And so having waited patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. He received the outcome of his faith, which was the salvation of his soul. And in the passage before us today, the apostle is making a connection between Abraham and between the heirs of the promise, his spiritual offspring. A connection between Abraham that reaches down even to the present day, even to our own generation, even to us who are the heirs of the promise today. For when God swore to Abraham, he was not swearing to him alone, but to all of the heirs, to all of his spiritual offspring to all of those who follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. The promise of salvation is a hope that is entertained by all of Abraham's descendants, that is, those who are of faith. Therefore, the confirmation of that promise, the oath given by God to confirm and to assure Abraham of the certainty of that promise, is a pledge given to us just as it was given to Abraham. Abraham needed assurances for the sustaining of his faith. We also are in need of such assurances. And all that we need, God has graciously provided. Everything necessary for life and godliness, both for the life to come and for the sustaining of our faith in this present life, God gives all of these things to us for our benefit. So let's go to Hebrews 6, and we're going to pick up in verse 16 this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16. He says, therefore, men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Here, the apostle brings forward the use of an oath in settling disputes among men, right? To make an argument from the lesser to the greater in order to prove the certainty of God's promises, right? Whenever men take an oath in this present life, in this present world, they swear by someone greater than themselves, They swear, they take the oath by a higher power, by a higher authority. Namely, they swear by the name of God. They appeal to God, who is the higher authority, that if the one who is entering into this oath, if he is lying, or if he fails to uphold his oath, then he is calling on God to see and calling on God to punish accordingly, according to the failure of the oath. The oath is an appeal to God to enter into a transaction between two men, binding each person, binding each party to the terms of the oath. So, for example, when a man and woman enter into the covenant of marriage, part of this covenant is the swearing of oaths or this giving of vows, which is an oath, a swear to one another. And when they do that, they are put under the oath before God, that they are reminded that you are taking this oath, you are swearing this oath in the presence of God Almighty, and you are calling God to witness to this and to be the one that holds you accountable to the upholding and the fulfilling of your marriage vow. God is the witness to the covenant. For him to see and him to punish either the man or the woman who fails to uphold the terms of The covenant. This is why men swear by one greater than themselves. Everyone in the oath must acquiesce to the authority of God. Then, in terms of mankind, in terms of this present world, what is the purpose of the oath? Well, he says, with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. The use of an oath among men is for the settling of a dispute. When one man says one thing and another man says another thing, and there is no evidence by which to determine who is in the right and who is in the wrong, right? Unless there is a way to settle the dispute, it will end in endless strife, endless fighting, 
constant bickering and turmoil because there's no way to bring an end to the dispute. In such cases, an oath is necessary to bring an end to the dispute. The oath is given to bring assurance to the truthfulness of the word spoken. And when a man takes an oath before God, especially if it's a God-fearing man. Now, of course, in terms of this present world, all of this is contingent upon men who fear God and men who are truthful to their word. But in generally speaking, this is the case, and the maxim is true, and that is what he is bringing forward. When the man takes the oath, when he swears to God that his testimony is true, then that settles the dispute. That is the satisfaction that is needed, the guarantee that is given to bring an end to the dispute. The general rule then among men is that the oath confirms the word of the man. The oath gives the assurance to all of the parties involved so that the dispute is settled without violence, without strife. When there is no other proof or evidence that can be produced, the oath given among men is capable of ending controversies and satisfying whatever doubts and uncertainties that there are. Now verse 17, how does he apply it to the present situation? In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed it with an oath. In the same way, right, he's bringing this forward to make a point of connection, a parallel. As it is among men, so it is among the Lord. The point of connection is how the oath puts the mind at rest. The oath is given for the sake of assurance, for the sake of a confirmation of a testimony. Now, if an oath will serve to confirm the words of men, you have two men who are at odds, two men who are in a disagreement over a matter. And the oath among the men is able to satisfy doubts. It's able to bring confirmation concerning the testimony of men. And this is among sinful men, right? This is men in this present world who I remind you, according to the Bible, are all what? All men are liars, it says in Psalm 116, verse 11. All men are liars. And yet, among all men who are by nature liars... Men who are adverse to the truth, yet lying men will speak the truth when they are placed under an oath, so that we can have confidence in the word of the man when he swears by the higher authority. Now, if that is true among men, then how much more confidence can we have in the promise of God when God swears, when God takes an oath, that he will fulfill the promise that he has made to a man. His oath is a confirmation of his word. And in contrast to men, God is not a liar, but God is the fount of all truth. It says in Numbers twenty-three nineteen, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Titus 1.2 says, God who cannot lie. God cannot lie. So his word is certain and sure. But then when he adds his oath to that word, it gives even a greater confirmation of the certainty of the word of God. Just as man takes an oath to give assurance to the truthfulness of his word, in the same way God took an oath for our benefit to serve as a further confirmation of the certainty of his promise. In the case of men, when they swear, they swear by one greater than themselves. We swear by God, but God cannot swear by anyone greater than himself because there exists no being that is greater than God. He is the greatest, the highest, the most glorious of all beings. He cannot swear by one greater than himself because there exists no one who is greater than God. So who does God swear by? He swears by himself. He swears by his own name. He puts his own name, his own reputation on the line, right, in order to confirm to us the assurance of the promise. Remember what it said in verse 13. Hebrews 6, 13. 
For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Now, what is the reason for the oath? Well, notice what he says there in verse 17. God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise. What motivated God to swear the oath to Abraham and to his spiritual descendants was his desire. God had a desire. There was a purpose that God wanted to accomplish. This idea of God entering into an oath did not originate in the mind of Abraham. It did not come from the mind or will of man. Abraham did not enter into terms of agreement or enter into a negotiation with God and tell the Lord, right, that all of this seems good and great. All of these promises that you've made to me, they sound very wonderful. They sound very great. But I can't believe these things unless you give me your word. Unless you swear to me, unless you enter into an oath, then I'm not going to believe these promises. But if you will give me your oath, if you will give me your word, if you will swear, then I will believe these promises. Did Abraham negotiate with God in such a way? Of course not. This is not what occurred at all. Because man can never make any demands of God. That God would enter into any covenant with any man is already an act of infinite condescension. It is already a display of the grace and goodness of God. And yet here, because God is so kind, so gracious, so loving, so generous, because he knows the nature of Abraham, he knows our frame, he knows that we are dust, he is aware of our weaknesses, he knows how shaky and how unstable our faith can be, he sees us in our helpless condition. And he himself says, what can I do? What can I do in order to confirm them, in order to stabilize them, in order to give to them even greater confirmation of my promises? This is what God desired to do, to give to Abraham the greatest assurance possible for the sake of his faith and the faith of his people, to bolster our faith, to give it even more stability God took an oath to man, right? Can you imagine that? That God himself would put himself under an oath, under an obligation, willingly to man, even though his word is already sure and certain. His purpose to bless Abraham and his descendants had already been declared when he gave the promise to Abraham. Yet he added the oath to the promise in order to grant a greater confirmation to the heirs. Now, we must be reminded that when God does such things, His gracious actions toward men, it always comes from His will, His desire, His sovereign pleasure. All the grace of God given to sinners. Is God giving an oath to Abraham? Is this an act of His grace? Is it an act of His mercy? his kindness, his love, his generosity to Abraham. Of course it is, because it's not something that Abraham has merited. He did not earn this. He did not deserve it. God freely gave it to him. And all of the grace of God, all of his mercy to sinners, must come from his sovereign will. It always originates in God, in his goodness, in his grace, his love, and his mercy that comes to man because of the purpose of his sovereign will. It is never prompted by some goodness that God sees in man. We read earlier, and we'll read it again, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Titus 3, verses 4 to 7. It says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to what? His own mercy, which he gives according to the purpose of his will. His will, his purpose, his grace. Now, when we consider these things, the goodness of God, how the grace of God originates in the will of God, and it comes to us based upon His sovereign will, His free grace given to us. It should produce within us three virtues. First, thankfulness to God. When we consider that we are recipients of God's grace, and all of this is unmerited, we've done nothing to deserve it, that should make us thankful and grateful to God Why would you be gracious to me? And it should cause us to overflow in gratitude, in thankfulness, in praise to God. One of the chief evidences of the sinfulness of men described in Romans chapter 1 verse 21 is that men do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Men do not thank God. They are ungrateful wretches for all the blessings and the benefits that God has given to them. He is our creator. We would not exist if God did not give us life. He is the one who sustains our life every second of every day. He gives to all mankind life, breath, and all things. Our existence and our very life depends upon his goodness, his will. Yet in the sinful state, we are ungrateful We presume upon the kindness of God. We receive every benefit from Him, and we never even say thank you to God for what He has done. Isn't this one of the first things that we teach children? Even when they're very young, one of the first acts in raising them up rightly is to teach them to say thank you. If someone gives you something, if someone does something kind for you, even a two- or three-year-old ought to know that they should go and say thank you to the person who gave that to them. But men don't know this, that they ought to do this to God, to their creator, to their maker. And we don't do it in our natural state. Well, we're not in a natural state. We are in a state of grace. And not only is God our creator, he is also our redeemer, who has given his own son, shed his blood for our salvation. How can we not be grateful to God and overflow and abound with thankfulness to him for all that he has done to us? The renewed man. One of the evidences of the grace of God and the salvation that is within us should be thankfulness to God, to recognize that God is our great benefactor and we ought to daily pour out our hearts and open our lips in praise and thanks to God for his many, many blessings given to us, both in terms of the physical life that we have, but primarily in terms of the spiritual life that we have in Jesus Christ. Secondly, it should produce humility in us. Everything we have, every blessing has come to us from the Lord. Every single one. Whether that be blessings associated with this present life or the blessings associated with the spiritual life and the life to come. No aspect of our salvation originated in us. Every single bit of it was produced by God, not on the basis of our strength and not because of our will, all of it has come from the Lord. What do you have that you have not received? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Who am I, Elizabeth said, that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Who am I, God, that you would do this for me? that you would be so gracious to me, that you would make me an object of your love and grace and mercy, that you would give your own son for me. I'm nothing. I am a worm, right? I am a man who is but a maggot before God. And yet you did this for me. It should produce humility in us. The grace that we have received, whatever measure of faith that we attain to, Whatever giftings that God gives to us, whatever righteousness is produced in us, all of the blessings of salvation come from above. Therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord and not in himself. There is no greater contradiction in the world than a proud Christian. These things are completely contrary 
to one another. It cannot be the case. And then the third thing, when we consider God's purpose of grace given to us, it should produce compassion. Compassion for our fellow man. We are no better than any other man in our natural state. It is God who lifted us up out of the pit. And when we see other poor sinners still dead in their trespasses and sins, still wallowing there in their blood, still there in the pit of despair, when we see them in that situation, we ought to have compassion on them and we ought to do whatever we can to work for their salvation by praying for them, by loving them, by preaching the gospel to them. It says in Matthew 18, 33, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? The ungrateful servant, that wicked, worthless slave, his ungratefulness was seen, right? His wickedness was seen in that his master had great compassion on him, great mercy on him, and yet he did not in turn that to his fellow man, to his fellow slave. God's compassion to us lifted us up out of the pit and put our feet on solid ground. And as he had compassion on us, so we ought to have compassion on one another. And also, isn't it the case that not only did God have compassion on us, isn't it nearly the testimony of every Christian that our salvation came about, the means that God used to bring it about in our life was someone else having compassion on us, whether that be our parents or our grandparents or some friend or some stranger. Someone invited us to church. Someone invited us to Bible study. Someone taught us the gospel from our infancy all the way up. Isn't that them having compassion on us? Our salvation is produced because God had compassion on us and then God used other people who had compassion on us and then brought about our salvation. And isn't it also the case that even after our conversion, when we were weak, when we were young, when we were ignorant, when we were immature Christians, that someone more advanced in the Christian faith took us under their wings and taught us the things of God, taught us what it means to be a Christian, how to live the Christian life, taught us doctrine so that we have a right understanding of Christian truth. So our salvation is a result of God's compassion to us, and then God used men, other people, other Christians, to have compassion on us, both for our conversion and for our sanctification. And we've received all of this from the Lord, and that ought to produce in us what? Compassion for our fellow men. We ought to be compassionate to them as God and others have been compassionate to us. Now back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. God's desire was to show even more to the heirs of the promise. Here, this is the particular focus of his compassion, of his purpose and desire. It is the heirs of the promise that are the object of God's purpose or of his desire. And the heirs are the elect, the believers, the church, the spiritual offspring of Abraham. He wants to confirm or show even more the unchangeableness of his promise. He wants to give this to the heirs of the promise. Now this shows, while it is true that God is good to all men, that God causes the rain to fall on all, he causes the sun to shine upon all men, he gives to all mankind life, breath, and all things. Right? God does this for all men. But the particular focus of his love, of his redemptive love, is who? It is the heirs of the promise. God is not giving this confirmation to the wicked and to the reprobate. He's not giving this to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. He is giving it to the church. He is giving it to his people. They are the specific focus of his redemptive love. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, 6 to 9, these, the heirs of the promise, are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, those who are of faith. Galatians 3, 6 says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. 
Then chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Then also chapter 4, verse 28. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. There, heirs according to the promise, children of the promise. Right? And who is he talking about here? He's not talking about the physical descendants of Abraham. He's talking about the spiritual descendants of Abraham, those who are of faith, who in this context are comprised of both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. All Christians are children of the promise. And this promise that God made to Abraham belongs to us just as much as it belonged to Abraham, just as much as it belonged to Isaac, and just as much as it belonged to Jacob and his sons. God's desire was to show to the heirs of the promise, to show to all believers in all ages the unchangeableness of his purpose. The purpose of God was first declared in the promise. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. God's purpose for the elect is to grant to them salvation. His promise confirms this purpose for us. It is God's declaration to us that everything needed for eternal life, for the forgiveness of sins, to be made righteous in His sight, to be adopted into His family, namely every spiritual blessing necessary for our full and final redemption. This is God's purpose for the heirs of the promise, the full final redemption of his people, and he has promised to provide everything necessary for its accomplishment in the person and work of his son, who is the seed of Abraham, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the promise that God has given to the heirs. We need to be convinced of this. We must be assured of this truth. For our comfort and for our endurance during the time of our sojourning, we must be convinced of the unchangeableness of the purpose of God. That God's word of promise is sure, that it is certain, that it is unalterable. And so, in order to confirm this, God interposed the promise with an oath. And the oath was given to confirm the immutability, the unchangeableness of the promise of God. The promise is itself sufficient because the promise comes from God who cannot lie, who does not change his mind. He does not change and he will not change his mind. But he does this for our sakes so that there is another leg on which our faith can rest. God added his oath to the promise to give to us a greater assurance, an even greater certainty, and even greater comfort in the unchangeableness of his purpose. That's what he says in verse 17. To show even more, even more. He already showed it when he gave the promise, but now he wants to show or demonstrate it, manifest it even more. So he gives the oath to show it and to display it in an even greater way. And again, this is for our sake, for our present comfort and our future glory are dependent upon the immutability of God's purpose. Now we might say, why would God be so gracious to me? Why would he be so good to us? Why would he show such compassion seeing that we are so weak, right? Seeing that we are so unworthy. And of course we are weak. And of course, all of us are unworthy. And of course, none of us deserves one drop of God's goodness and mercy. I do not deserve it. You do not deserve it. Abraham did not deserve it. But when has our salvation? When has your salvation? When has my salvation? When has Abraham's salvation ever been dependent upon our worthiness and upon our strength 
or our goodness. If at any point the certainty of our salvation was dependent on you or me, that is where it would fail. It would fail at that point. But it is not dependent on you or me, but rather the certainty rests upon God in the unchangeableness of his purpose. And this is what gives us confidence that we will indeed receive our inheritance. It is the purpose of God, the unchangeableness of the purpose of God, that he is the one that granted it to us. It is his desire to give to us full and final redemption. And if this is what God wants to do, who's going to stop him? No one can stop him. The devil can't. The wicked can't. Not even our own weaknesses can stop God from doing these things. There is no believer, though, who from time to time is not struck with a sense of our own unworthiness, who cannot imagine that he would be an heir of God, that he would be a fellow heir of Christ. And God knows this. And this is exactly why he gave us the promise, and this is why he interposed it with an oath. So that when we begin to doubt, when we begin to call into question, there's no way that this could be the case, we have great confirmation for our faith. It's like a son who is, has a father, his father has a great estate, and the son is the sole heir of that estate. He is the heir who will inherit that state, estate uh, during the passing of his father. His father confirms it to him. His father tells him these things. He assures him that he loves him, that he cares for him, that it is his desire to give to him this estate. And he allows him an allowance during, uh, that's fitting for his time until his passing. He assures him that it is his. The son is required to work there, to be faithful, to be diligent, to serve and to work for the estate, while all of his friends go off to the city. They go and they have a good time. They live their time in pleasures and doing all the things that young people like to do while the son is there working diligently to, for his father. In order to encourage him, in order to sustain him during this time, the father has given him his word and he's assured of his love for him. But he brings him into his study and he opens up his safe and he shows him his last will and testament. He shows him this deed where there it is written in a legal document that this son is the inheritor of the entire estate. And in so doing, does that not give to that son a further confirmation, a greater encouragement of those things? He already had the confirmation because of the love of his father, because of the natural course of things in the world. But here... This title deed gives him, this legal document gives him an even greater confirmation, a certainty and an assurance that what his father has promised him, this vast estate, will be given to him. He will inherit it. It's just a matter of time. And in the same way, this is what God has done for us. He has given us his word. He has assured us of his love for us. But now he interposes it with an oath, with a legal transaction in order to confirm even more, to give greater encouragement and hope to the heirs of the promise. Verse 18, Hebrews 6, 18. Here he says, So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Here is the reason why God interposed the promise with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, we have two things that are unalterable, that are unchangeable. First, we have the promise of God, the promise that he gave to Abraham. That promise came from God who cannot lie, who is a God according to his character and nature that it is impossible for him to lie. That is the first unchangeable thing, the promise of God. Then we have the second unchangeable thing, which is the oath of God. And the oath of God also came from the same God that gave the promise. And what is true of the character and nature of God when he gave the promise is still true of the character and nature of God when he gave the oath, in that God cannot lie. So we have abundant reason. We have two unchangeable things, the promise 
and the oath given to us by the God who cannot lie, that it is impossible for him to lie. It is contrary to his very nature. Just like the sun, the sun gives light and heat. These properties belong to its nature. It is impossible for the sun to give off darkness and to give off cold. It will not happen because it's contrary to the nature of the sun. Well, the sun above will sooner produce darkness and cold than God will ever produce a lie. It is impossible. It is contrary to his nature. We must believe that God cannot lie. We must believe and trust the word of promise. We must be assured of the unchangeableness of his purpose. Sin entered into the world because man believed God was a liar. Because Adam and Eve doubted the promise of God, doubted the threats of God, that his word need not be trusted, that his purpose declared to them was mutable, that it was subject to change, that yes, Satan told them, yes, God has said these things, but what God has said is not true. You will not surely die if you take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Actually, God lied to you. He swindled you. He bamboozled you. But I'm telling you the truth, and you should listen to me. And they doubted God. They did not trust God. In what they did, are they not showing that they believe God is a liar, that his word cannot be trusted? And this sin, this original sin, from Genesis chapter 3. The, the nature of every sin is the same. It is doubting, disbelieving the word of God. Tr- a, a lack of trust in the faithfulness of God. In the unchangeableness of the word of God. So we need strong encouragements to believe God. This because of our weaknesses. Because we are beset with fears, with doubts, with trepidations. We need strong assurance to sustain us during the time of our testing. The spirit is indeed willing, but our flesh is weak. And we will be tempted to grow weary. We will be tempted to despair, to lose hope. And God knows that we need strong encouragements. And this is why he confirmed his oath or his promise with the oath to give us this assurance. Notice there that he says in verse 18, we have these two unchangeable things where it is impossible for God to lie, so that we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Here, this promise and our need for it to be an unalterable, unchangeable purpose of God, to have assurance of these things, it has relationship to our taking refuge in Him. Right? That's how he describes the heirs of the promise. We who have taken refuge in him. This is what the promise is addressing. The promise of God is addressing how it is that sinners can escape the wrath of God. The wrath of God that is coming upon the world of the ungodly. This world is passing away along with its lust. Because of sin, the wrath of God is coming upon the world of wicked men. All sinners deserve to die. All sinners deserve the judgment, the condemnation, the wrath of God against them because of their sin. And all men, including you and me, all of us by nature are sinners. All of us have guilt of sin. We all deserve the wrath of God to be poured out upon us. It says in Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. And in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. These are words from God. These are promises from God, threats from God, and God cannot lie. They are declaring his purpose and what God will do to everyone who is wicked and who is unbelieving. Well, when a man's eyes are opened, when by the conviction of the Spirit, He comes to see himself as a sinner. He sees the wrath of God that is upon him. He sees that he has sinned against an infinite and holy God, against a just judge 
who will by no means clear the guilty. When the weight and the guilt of his own sin is pressed upon his heart and upon his mind by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. When he is cut to the heart, he cries out, What shall I do to be saved? Is there any hope? Is there any way of escape? Is there a refuge where I might hide myself and be spared from the great and terrible wrath of God? The promise of God is that refuge. The promise is the refuge. God, in his mercy and grace, has provided a way of escape. He has provided a shelter where poor sinners might hide themselves and be saved from the storm of God's wrath. He has provided a refuge that brings safety so that we might pass through the judgment of God and not be condemned. And who is the promise of God? Who is the refuge where which sinners can be hidden and saved from the coming wrath of God? Well, it is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the refuge provided by God. And the promise of God assures us that if we believe in his Son, if we look to Christ for salvation, that God will deliver us from everything that we could not deliver ourselves from. That God will save us. He will deliver us from sin, from death, from eternal condemnation, and that God will take us into his own family and that he will bestow an inheritance on us, and that he will give to us eternal life and all of the spiritual blessings of salvation if we believe in his son, Jesus Christ, as the way of escape, as the refuge from which we are delivered from all the things that the law could not deliver us from. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law could not deliver us. The law could not provide a refuge for us. Our own futile works of righteousness are no shelter from which we can hide ourselves from the storm of God's wrath. What is the only way that we can be delivered? Well, what we could not do for ourselves, God did for us by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he condemned our sin in his flesh. Also, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. This is what happened with the believers in Thessalonica. They were trusting in their idols, but then they saw that their idols were vain and futile, and that their idols could provide no refuge, no deliverance from the wrath of God, but that Jesus could. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Jesus is the one who rescues us. He delivers us from the wrath to come that is coming upon the world because of sin. This present world, the heavens and earth that exist now, are being stored up for what? There is wrath and there is a fire that is coming. Just as the ancient world was deluged with water and God brought judgment on the whole world through water, so now God has reserved judgment for this present heavens and earth and he will destroy it with fire. The law of God awakens a man to the reality of his sin, to the reality of the judgment of God against him. And it is the promise of God that shows him the way of escape. The promise of God shows him the refuge where he can be delivered from the wrath of God. The promise of God shows him the fountain where he can go and have all of his sins washed away. This is as it says in Acts 13. 
Acts 13, 38 to 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Could the law of Moses be a refuge to deliver people from their sins? No. It was weakened because of flesh. Can man's own works of righteousness be a refuge from which they can be delivered from their sins? No, there's no way. What is the only refuge here according to Acts 13? Only our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness in His name. Believing in Him is freed from all the things you could not be freed from in the law of Moses. Also, Acts 2, 37-39. Acts 2, 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. The promise has relationship to the forgiveness of sins, to faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. This is what the promise was given to Abraham. And this is the promise that makes all of us heirs according to the promise. All of those who are heirs of Christ are believers, those who have faith that Christ can deliver them from the wrath to come. But how can we know? How can we have certainty that if we trust in Jesus Christ, that we shall indeed be delivered from our sins, that we shall become heirs of the promise, that we shall have the forgiveness of sins? Because all of these things we are taking by the word of God. We were not there to witness with our own eyes his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. None of us have ever been to heaven to see the inheritance that God has in store and waiting for those who love him. None of us have ever experienced yet the fullness of eternal life. None of us have been there and seen those things. Everything we're taking in relationship to our salvation and to our inheritance, yes, we have pledges, we have the beginning of these things in this life, but the full consummation of them, it awaits the life to come. We are receiving these promises by way of a pledge in this life in order to gain the promise. And according to the scriptures, in order to gain our life in the life to come, what do we have to do to our life now? We have to lose our life. In order to be glorified with Christ in the life to come, we have to suffer with Christ in this present life. And we're going to be tempted. We are going to be tried over and over again. Our flesh will rise up and say, it is vain to serve the Lord. The world will tell us, it is vain to serve the Lord. They will say that you are a fool to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily, and to follow Christ. Wouldn't it be better to join in with us? To join in and to participate and to have all the pleasures and all the comforts of the world. To partake of the pleasures of sin to pursue riches and pleasures and the comforts that are associated with this life. Our faith will be tested on these things over and over and over again. It was that seed sown among the thorns that was choked out by the pleasures and the riches and the things of this present life. It was that seed sown there amongst the rocky soil that failed because of the persecutions that arose on account of the word. Our faith will be tested and tried in these areas. And if our faith in Christ, if it does not result in eternal riches and in eternal glory, if all we get for serving Christ is some benefit in this life, according to 1 Corinthians 15, what does that make us? The most wretched, pitiful people in the whole world. Because we are giving up our present life for the hope of eternal glory. We are giving up control of our life to Christ in the hope of an inheritance, that we will receive an inheritance from God. But have we taken possession of this inheritance yet? 
It is there waiting for us in heaven. We have a pledge of it. We have a guarantee of it in the Holy Spirit given to us. But none of us have been glorified yet. None of us are in heaven right now. None of us are in the presence of the Lord in the full way. None of us are in that eternal state yet. So how can we know for certain that God will indeed be true to his word? That he will indeed give to us our inheritance? We need assurances for our faith. First, God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. That truth we need to be settled on. Secondly, God made a promise to all believers to give them an inheritance in Christ. Isn't the word of God filled with such confirmations, repetitions of this promise over and over and over again? All over the scriptures, these things are laid out for the believer. And then third, God interposed this promise with an oath. And all three of these give to us strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The life of faith is a continual embracing of the promise of God, taking hold of the promise of God, clinging to Christ because of the hope of eternal life in Him. And we will be tempted to forsake Christ, to give up, to let go, to walk away from Him. And the promise of God interposed with an oath is all the assurance we need that if we believe in Christ, we will never be disappointed. It is like a deed, like a will and testament placed into our hands that we can see in this life that is an assurance and a guarantee of what God will give to us in the life to come. And we need that because holding fast to Christ may cost us very dearly in this life. There are some who have suffered reproach because they held fast to Christ. Others have been mocked and ridiculed for holding fast to Christ. Some have had their property plundered for holding fast to Christ. Others have been thrown into prison. Some have even been beaten and still even others have shed their blood for holding fast to Christ. Doesn't it say so in Hebrews eleven thirty-five to 38? Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men and women the world was not worthy of, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All for what reason? Why would they accept such treatment in their body, right, in this life? For what reason? The hope of a better resurrection. They were looking for a better life, for a better country, for a heavenly, eternal life. And they were willing to endure all of the miseries of this life because of the hope set before them. They believed that God had an inheritance stored up in heaven for them, that there was waiting for them a glory that would far surpass whatever sufferings they endured in this life, an inheritance that they had never seen with their own eyes, right? An inheritance that they had never touched and held with their own hands, one that they had not taken possession of, yet this inheritance was for them more real and more valuable than their very lives. And it was given to them by a promise. It was confirmed to them by an oath. God gave a pledge to them. He confirmed it to them. He made it certain to them, and they took hold of it by faith. And that same inheritance is waiting for who? It's waiting for you and for me. And the same promises interposed with the same oath that confirmed this inheritance for them, that same promise is given to us, and that same oath is interposed on our behalf for our comfort, for our assurance, for our encouragement in this present life. So do we have valid reason to forsake Christ, to turn away, to give up, to say it's not worth it? No way. No, we don't have any valid reason to do so. So then let us press on. 
Let us run the race with endurance. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us cling to Christ alone and live by faith in him and know for certain that at the end there is waiting for us a crown of righteousness that the Lord will reward to all of those who long for his appearing. We must press on. And we have good reason to press on. Right? The Christian life, we don't believe in blind faith. Faith that is baseless or that has no basis or no reasonable rational element. Right? We believe in a rational faith, a reasonable faith, because it's based upon whose word? It's based upon the word of God. God who cannot lie. Impossible for him to lie. And we will take men's word and believe that they will be true to their word. But why will we not take God's word? No, we have every reason to believe that we will receive our inheritance and all the encouragement that we need to overcome whatever traps, whatever snares, whatever pitfalls are before us. We have every reason to press on. So then, let us look to the author and the perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, who also had to do this. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. He was willing to endure the shame of the cross. So let us then press on through many tribulations until we enter into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. We're so grateful for all that you have done for us. Lord, that you would condescend to to enter into a covenant with your creatures. And Lord, not with creatures who were grateful and thankful to you, but Lord, creatures who had rebelled against you, who had turned and who had committed treason against you. Lord, that you would bring about redemption for them. Lord, that you would grant to them such assurances of your love and of this salvation that you have promised for them. That you would send your own son to come and to die on the cross for their sins, to be raised for their justification, to take up this role of high priest and be a mediator on their behalf to reconcile them to you. Lord, why would you do these things? for people who are so wretched, Lord, as we are. And yet, your gospel teaches us so clearly that this is exactly what you have done for poor sinners. Lord, you have come down and you have brought about and accomplished a redemption for us. Lord, you have stored up an inheritance for us in heaven that is secure and being kept by you. Lord, that a thief cannot break in and steal, that rust cannot destroy, that moths cannot eat. And an inheritance, Lord, that is certain and secure. And Lord, though we have not yet received the full measure of this, Lord, it is our possession even now. So that we are, Lord, richer than any men on this earth. Because every spiritual blessing in heavenly places belongs to us. It has already been purchased for us, and it's simply a matter of time until we take possession of it. Lord, we thank you for this, and we pray, Lord, that it would produce within us, Lord, a gratefulness to you. Lord, that we would always be thankful and grateful, Lord, even when your providence brings about difficulties and hardships in this life, Lord, that we would still give thanks to you seeing that no matter what trial or affliction we are afflicted with in this present life, whether it be sickness, Lord, whether it be poverty, Lord, whether it be some temptation or some persecutor who rises up against us, Lord, that worst that could ever happen to us in this life is that someone can take our life, but they can never take the inheritance and the eternal life that you have waiting. Lord, the crown of righteousness that is waiting for us in the life to come. So, Lord, we pray that we would be thankful to you. Lord, that we would be humble before you, seeing that every good thing that we have has come from you. And that, Lord, that it might produce within us a compassion and a love 
Lord, for our fellow man. Lord, especially for your saints, in whom should be all of our delight. But Lord, even also for those who are still dead in their sins. Lord, that we would be compassionate to them because you have been compassionate to us. Lord, we thank you that you know our weaknesses. Lord, you remember our frame. You know that we are dust. Lord, you have provided everything that we need. Lord, for, the, for our conversion. Lord, to produce faith within us, but also to sustain it through the time of our life. And Lord, while your promises are sure and certain, we thank you that, Lord, you have interposed your promise with an oath so that we have two unchangeable things. And we know that it is impossible for you to lie. And that, Lord, all of this you did for us so that we would have strong encouragement so that when our faith becomes weak and when we become discouraged, Lord, in this present life, when we see all the evil around us, we see all the turmoil, Lord, that is taking place. Lord, we are weighed down with our own flesh and with our own sin. And so we are so easily, Lord, brought to a place of discouragement. Yet we thank you that you are there to encourage us and that you have given us your promise and your oath. Lord, so that we would have strong encouragement to press on, Lord, to to get up and to continue living the Christian life, to live the life of faith until we come to the end of our course, until our race is complete. Lord, may these truths build us up in our faith, giving to us even greater assurance. And Father, we pray that we would press on, Lord, until we enter into the kingdom of God. So Lord, be with us, protect your people. Lord, build us up in our faith, grant to us the perseverance and the encouragement that we need. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.